Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, wherever you are in the world, beloved Salonista. I'm Damien Barr, and you're listening to the podcast of my live literary salon. Now, we were supposed to be having this salon at the Savoy in person with all of you, but, well, dot, dot, dot. So, we're having this salon digitally. It's our first ever online salon, and all three of our guests appeared on Facebook Live. They are John Niven, Peep Fides, and Polly Sampson. So, you're going to hear me introduce them, and in each case, they're going to be reading and taking questions that have been messaged to them, and also some of the questions that I've sent to them. So, uh, you can check all their questions and their answers, because they type loads as well, on the Facebook page. From Brotherhood of Man to UB40, from ABBA to the police, music provided a safe space away from the tensions of home for Pete Pafides. Obviously, I had to Google a lot of the music because, as many of you will know, I'm musically illiterate, apart from a strange niche in 1992 to 1994 indie American music. Smashing pumpkins, I'm in. Anyway, back to Pete and his fantastic memoir, Broken Greek. Never have the trials and tribulations of growing up and the human need for a sense of belonging been so heartbreakingly and humorously depicted. It's an absolutely gorgeous memoir about his parents moving from Cyprus and Greece to the UK to the Midlands and opening a chip shop. Um, it's salty, it's vinegary, it's lovely and it's been optioned by the people who produced The Crown. It will have you craving salty chips and a better record collection. Here is Pete Pafides with his memoir, Broken Greek. I'm Pete Pafides. Um, it's amazing and wonderful to be here. It's a coming of age kind of memoir. It's about identity. It's about growing up and trying to work out who you are and about pop music, the records that you love, um, sort of explaining who you are to you. And uh, so I'm going to read you a bit to start with, and then I'm delighted to answer any questions that you might have. So to set the scene, as Damien said, I grew up uh, in and around fish and chips. My parents had a fish and chip shop. They were uh, they and um, it was called the the first one was called the Great Western. And um, by the by the time of the bit, I'm going to read out to you. Um, they we had a shop called the Kingfisher, and they were off, uh, you know, doing doing their work. And me and my brother were left often alone in the house just kind of making our own amusement and top of the pops as i've said in the book more than one time was our primary news source and so um i'm going to read out a, an extract from uh, which it kind of revolves around a particular episode of top of the pops that was on in 1980 i'm 11 my brother is 15 my brother is called aki um my fa i was known to my family as tacky so if you see the word tacky then that's me and then and then someone called jed pops up later on Jed is the girl next door. She's 15. She's our next door neighbor. And uh, let's take it from here, shall we? <clears throat> the advent of punk had clearly affected the generation of musicians who predated it. Some just pretended it hadn't happened, while others who in some way saw themselves as inspirations to the Sex Pistols, the Clash and the Damned were happy to invite comparisons. Having had their early single substitute covered by the Sex Pistols, the Who had more reason than most to align themselves to the new vanguard of three-chord nihilists. And in August, when The Who's singer Roger Daltrey appeared as a guest presenter alongside Tommy Vance on Top of the Pops, 
it was immediately apparent which side of the line he had decided to place himself. Using all the acting skills in evidence on McVicar, the film he was ostensibly there to promote, the opening shot of the show saw Daltrey affect a grumpy, disengaged air, while beside him, Vance attempted to ascertain why. You're looking a bit miserable, he ventured. For good reason, mate, for good reason, huffed Daltrey. I come all the way here to see the clash and I'll find that they're not on. With new short hair and a leather jacket, Daltrey's resolute surliness persisted into other areas of conversation. Vance asked him about the Who's recent US tour, which had seen him venture as far south as Texas. I was wondering where you got that suntan, said Vance. Yeah, said Daltrey, still transmitting from his own private cloud of chippy diffidence. They got all that sun down there, mate. When it came to the job of introducing Top of the Pops in-house dance troupe, Legs & Co, who that week were dancing to ELOs all over the world, Daltrey addressed the camera without the aid of Vance. There's an awful lot I'd like to say about Legs & Co, he said, struggling to hide the nervous smirk of a schoolboy who has told all his friends that he'll shout out a swear word in tomorrow's assembly. But I'm afraid they'd probably bleep me out if I do. Did I notice any of this at the time? Yes and no. I took everything at face value. I was just watching a man in a bad mood. Were it not for Aki's increasingly animated response, I would have, I would have almost instantly erased it from my memory. But there was worse to come. Having rehearsed an entire exchange in order to let us know that he loved the clash, Daltrey set out to finish the job by telling us what he thought about disco. Ah, can't stand it. It's horrible he exclaimed. That's a terrible shame, Rog, replied Vance, because here come the village people. This was the moment that has since passed into infamy. As we cut from the studio to the video village peoples can't stop the music, Daltrey could be heard cheerfully calling out, watch your backs. Aki was aghast. Did you hear that? He squealed, pointing at the screen. Did you hear it? Hear what? He said, watch your backs. So, what does that mean? Well, you know, they're homosexuals, don't you? He's telling you to watch your back because they're homos. Do you get it? There was a lot for me to get in a short space of time. I didn't know that village people were gay. How could I have possibly known this? For a start, look at the way village people were dressed. A cowboy, a Native American, a soldier, a policeman and a biker. These were arguably the five manliest professions imaginable. How on earth could I be expected to gauge from their appearance that they might be homosexuals? It was almost as though they were deliberately throwing us off the scent by dressing like that. I mean, if they were all dressed as fairies, it would be a different story. If gay men wanted everyone to know that they were gay, that would surely have been a better way to go about it. And anyway, how did Aki know it? It wasn't in Smash Hits. It wasn't in the Birmingham Evening Mail. It wasn't on John Craven's news round. Where was he getting his news from? Then there was also the matter of Roger's actual remark. Why did you need to watch your back if there was a homosexual nearby? I don't get it, I said to him. Why is it funny? I always knew when Aki got exasperated because his voice leapt up two octaves. How do you not get it? I just don't. Why have you got to watch your backs when village people are there? Because... Oh, it doesn't matter. 
Thankfully, Jed next door was more patient with me. Knowing that I could rely on her for difficult explanations of sensitive topics, I asked her to explain both village people's dress code and Roger Daltrey's remarks when I next saw her. She went to great lengths to explain everything, and yet at the end of it all, I understood basically nothing. I was some way off enlightenment, but even as an 11 year old about to start secondary school, it didn't seem plausible to me that homosexuals might try and anally penetrate unsuspecting straight men. They're not, explained Jed. He's just being a wally. I was increasingly relying on Jed for any stray nuggets of worldly and musical knowledge that might help me deal with whatever lay ahead in life. She would generously call in on me whenever she ventured out to the record shop, easy listening, and I would tag along, knowing that being with someone who was about to buy a record was the next best thing to getting one myself. On the afternoon of August the 26th, Jed decided it was time to induct me into the genius of Paul Simon. She had ordered his new single late in the evening from Easy Listening, which was sometimes something you sometimes had to do if the record in question didn't look likely to chart. Jed had grown up with Paul Simon's music. Her siblings constantly had it playing around the house, but between the release of his last album, Still Crazy After All These Years, and this one, five years had passed and all her siblings had moved out. Now Jed had to buy her own Paul Simon records. Have you never heard Paul Simon, Takis? She asked me. In the ensuing years, I wondered why she had the remotest inclination to get an 11-year-old boy into Paul Simon. Most 15-year-olds would have surely thought it beneath them. It was only when I became a parent and found myself doing the same thing that I realised why you do it. Watching someone else discover one of your favourite artists for the first time is the nearest you'll get to reliving that moment yourself. I told her that I didn't have the faintest idea who Paul Simon was. She told me about the duo he used to sing in, alongside the guy who did Bright Eyes. The previous summer holidays had seen Art Garfunkel sitting at the top of the charts with his song. Knowing that Jed had gone to the trouble of ordering the Paul Simon single especially, this confirmed to me that Simon had plummeted from the lofty perch he once enjoyed in Simon and Garfunkel to his present ignominy. If Simon didn't want to be left permanently in the shade by Garfunkel, then Simon had better hurry up and write a song as good as Bright Eyes. Not that Jed seemed to see it that way. He's too good to get to number one, Takis. He's better than that. She may as well have uttered that last sentence in Flemish for all I really understood of it. The idea that anything could be too good to get to number one was totally alien to me. Although from here on in, I was willing to adopt it in defence of the Baron Knights and Racy's disastrous recent chart showings. Paul Simon does whatever he wants, continued Jed, as we made our way down the hill past the cinema. He doesn't care if it gets in the charts. Do you know his song, Fifty Ways to Leave Your Lover? Of course I didn't. I was 11. Jed burst into song. Just slip out the back, Jack, make a new plan, Stan. Don't need to be coy, Roy. Just listen to me. Hop on the bus, Gus. Don't need to discuss much. Just drop off the key, Lee. He lists all the ways you can leave your lover. It's really funny, Takis. In that moment, I didn't understand what was supposed to be clever or funny about the Paul Simon song Jed had just sung to me. But I worked hard to conceal my disappointment at her impromptu demonstration of his lyrical genius. Fifty ways to leave your lover sounded a bit simple to me, perhaps the sort of thing I might have liked at nursery. Still, I had to be careful what I said. I liked Jed's attention far too much to want to jeopardise my future supply of it. So that was uh, 
that's what was going on in my life in Birmingham uh, when I was um, when I just turned 11 in the summer holidays of uh, 1980. Um, so uh, thank you for joining me, guys. Oh yeah, we're in my record room, by the way. So this is this is and I've put I've put Bill Withers up there because we all need to think about the genius of Bill Withers today. So I've just he's Bill. Bill is my guardian angel, uh, both in real life and uh, in this uh, in this sort of broadcast. I'm going to answer a few questions. If you've got any questions, then do fire them fire them at me. I'm going to be scrolling down. What did Jed think of the book, Pete? Says John. John Niven. Hi, John. Um, I was really nervous about what Jed thought of the book. You were at the launch, weren't you? So you might have seen Jed there. So I was so happy that she was there. And uh, I didn't want to show her the book until it was finished and, and out. Actually, I didn't send it to her until it was out because I was so scared that there might be something in it that she, um, she remembered differently. And I didn't want to show her the bits with her that had her in them because it, they'd be out of context. And I wanted to see in the context of the whole book how 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 affectionate i felt towards that time and towards her and you know the process of writing the book i realized that she was effectively my big sister and maybe that maybe she even saw herself a little bit as a sort of sister to me because she was the youngest in her her family so maybe there was um an element of that going on but it, it's just amazing when you stay friends like that with someone over such a long period of time. And uh, it was just mind-blowing to see her at the look and to introduce her to people that hadn't met her but knew her through the book. So, And, you know, they were a little bit starstruck by her, which was wonderful. But, yeah, no, Jed and I are still um, very good friends. Um, I'm just scrolling down to see um, other questions. Hello, Anna. Um, there is a Spotify playlist, Anna. Uh, oh, yeah, I've made so there are over 600 songs mentioned in the whole book, and the book goes between 1973 and early 1983. And so I've done a Spotify playlist which has every single song in the book. So if you wanted to, you could read the book almost in real time as uh, as you um, as you listen to the songs. Now I'm going to read a couple of questions that Damien kindly uh, prepared uh, in advance. Um, the first question he's got here is, take us to the Great Western Fish Bar in Acox Green. What did it look and smell like and importantly sound like? Well, it sounded very exciting. And the, the, the sounds I associate with the Great Western Fish Bar are ones of great excitement because um, it, was, uh, it was your kind of average fish and chip shop from the front. And, uh, but there was a room at the back, which used to be a dining room in more sedate times. But... Um, but my dad, when they bought the shop, my dad got rid of the um, the the, the, ta the tables and put pinball machines in there. And so one of the the uh, some of the earliest sounds I can remember are the sounds of you know pinball. The, there's no ex more. There's barely a more exciting sound in the world than a pinball machine and young people playing lots of pinball machines at the same time. So. Um, I've got a very sort of clear memory of kind of finally sort of going in there, being allowed to go into that room for the first time, because I could access the pinball room from the house. There was a door that allowed you to go straight in there. And I was very nervous, and I sort of went in there. And bear in mind, these are the years. So there were three years where I wasn't talking. I didn't talk to anyone apart from my parents and my brother. And occasionally I would talk to teachers if there was no one else around. And the reason for that was that, We'd, we'd spent a long summer in Cyprus and we were about to move there because the island was partitioned. Then uh, it was too dangerous to move back to Cyprus. So I was very discombobulated and we arrived back 
thinking that we're about to sell the chips off, but actually we were here for the foreseeable future. And that, I suddenly stopped talking. So I was very, very shy. So you have to imagine me just being about to kind of go into this room and I'm not talking to anyone. I'm really shy and I'm not talking to anyone. And I open this door and I just see these, these kind of, you know, on pinball machines in the seventies, you had these amazing idealized beach scenes and evil Knievel and people like that all kind of depicted in lights. And I kind of went in there and it was just amazing. And of course, you know, when you're a young kid amongst older kids in a room full of pinball machines, you're a bit of a novelty and, uh, people are quite nice to you. And because I didn't talk, then I wasn't, I didn't really get on people's nerves. So, and also I was very good at pinball because I would play throughout the summer holidays. So the thing to do was to, to beat the, the, the shop owner's son at pinball. I was like, I was like a hustler essentially, not that <laughs> strange as that may seem to be. And it was also very, and I, I didn't know about the film Tommy, but obviously, um, there, there were overtones with Tommy because I, because I didn't talk to anyone. I was this kind of mute kid. And uh, so the sound, to answer your question, Damien, the, the predominant sounds I associate with that time are, are the sounds of the, 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 the games room in the pinball machine and, and music on the radio and dial a disc because I was, I was, as a special treat, I was allowed to listen to dial a disc. And so I had these epiphanic moments listening to records like Sugar Baby Love and uh, I Love to Love by Tina Charles. Um, the telephone is a surprisingly good uh, medium for that kind of thing. Anyway, sorry, I'm rambling. Um, so um, let me, I'm going to answer a question that, um, that came through earlier on from John Arnold, who uh, now a big, a, a big band for me in the book were the Baron Knights. Now, those of you in America might be a little bit confused by the, the mention of the Baron Knights because they weren't a very seminal group or anything. They were a comedy group and their big thing was that they would take recent hit singles and put new comical lyrics to them. And, uh, and that was, uh, and the Baron Knights were kind of my punk basically when they, when they had a hit with a song called a taste of aggro where they got, they did things like they, they changed the lyrics to rivers of Babylon. And so the first line said, there's a dentist in Birmingham. And it was all about a dentist in Birmingham. And I thought that this was like the naughtiest thing that you could ever do in a song, you know, just change lyrics like that. So um, I became obsessed with the Baron Knights. And, um, and uh, long after they had stopped having hit singles, I would order their, their records, especially from the local shop. And I once persuaded my parents to let me go and see them in cab. They, they would do cab. They come and do these cabaret night spots once in a while. And uh, and by the time the Baron Knights came to Birmingham and did a did a show that my parents came with me to go and see, um, I had quite a lot of their records. I'd bought records going back as far as the sixties, and uh, and I was really excited about getting the records signed by the Baron Knights after the show. And um, and that was, I'm not going to say too much about that, but, um, but that kind of punctured a few things that made me realize that it might not be quite as exciting being a Baron Knight, uh, playing, singing, there's a dentist in Birmingham, 200 nights a year in smoky venues. Uh, anyway, John's question is, um, how often do you dig the Baron Knights out for a listen now? And, uh, and, uh, do they sound like childhood disappointment? Um, 
don't listen to the Baron Knights um, a huge amount now, I've got to say. Um, Flight of the Concords are probably my go-to comedy music vehicle of choice these days. But uh, the Baron Knights did make, uh, did attempt to get traction as a sort of serious group uh, briefly a couple of times, once in the late 60s and in the early 70s. And there's a great song by them called You're All I Need, which is a kind of really sort of beefy, slightly scary kind of power pop song, which I would recommend to anyone. Anyway, um, probably a bit too much about the Baron Knights there. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure we've got time to read the Baron Knight's gig chapter, John, but um, um, you never know. Let's see how we go. Eh? Um, I'm going to answer another one of Damien's questions, if I may, because they're, um, they're great questions. Now, um, let's see. Um, yeah, there was... Um, you played football in teams of blacks versus whites at school. This was at primary school. You experienced racism, but were you conscious of it? And uh, the TV shows Mind Your Language and Love Thy Neighbour. Your parents felt seen by them, but did you? Okay, let's take those uh, one at a time. Um, okay, so the um, school I went, the the primary school I went to, um, the um, we'd have the uh, just you know the the lunchtime game of football in the playground and the kind of ethnic mix of kids in our school was that liked football was roughly 50 percent non-white kids and 50 percent white kids so for us it was just a ma pure matter of admin because how, how else were you going to be able to tell who was on which side so the non-white kids played the white kids and we just called it blacks versus whites because we didn't you know we were nine and ten years old and we didn't really know that that might be perceived as a as a, as a sort of wrong or bad thing it was just what it was and uh and so that carried on for a few months and uh, we had a head we had a new headmaster who was quite keen to kind of make an impression at the school as all new headmasters are uh, mr welbeck i've called him in the book that's not really his real name and uh and he um he took an assembly he sounded quite angry i didn't quite know where this was going he took an assembly and started talking about pianos and uh, he started talking about how, you know, on a piano you have white keys and you have black keys and, you know, you can, you know, you can try and play the white keys and you try, try to play the black keys, but it's not very good. You only get really good music if you play the white keys and the black keys together. And um, I didn't know where this, was. none of us knew where it was going. And then he suddenly sort of took a sharp turn into, uh, it sounded very angry and said, told us about, apartheid we didn't know what apartheid was you see and, and then he said i was shocked to find that in the school playground yesterday a form of apartheid was happening under my very nose and i've just i've never been so upset to see such a thing happening in this school and um and he described our games to us and we were just completely bewildered because for us it was just an admin issue and uh and so he you know we 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 had a bit of a chat you know what what do we do how do we continue these games and then someone said well let's just make it england versus brazil and we just carried on <laughs> we just carried on as we except i got a trans i was i was a terrible footballer so i got i got a transfer i ended up playing for the non-whites because um i they were they were much better at football than we were and i was such a terrible footballer that they needed some white players to sort of to to bring the average quality of their team down a bit so i ended up <laughs> because i was so bad i was like the opposite to a ringer because i was so bad i ended up playing on their team so um yeah that was kind of ignominious so and 
let's see. Uh, so yeah, um, the other bit, you, you experienced racism, but were you conscious of it? Um, I think we were quite conscious. We had we moved into a house where um, we had a, an elderly, very lonely elderly next door neighbour called Bert Chance, who uh, who was very very angry with my dad because he had a, a, a sort of a newish car, and and he told him that he thought it was unfair that there were there were British people driving around in cars that were older and more knackered than his and he didn't see that that was kind of right he was quite he was kind of a lonely guy he was a very bitter guy and uh we um my mum was quite my mum's uh approach to dealing with him i now realize was quite sort of inspirational because she um she just sort of said to us that you know we had to we couldn't we shouldn't be angry at him. We should sort of pity him, I guess. We should feel sorry for him because he was lonely and he was kind of angry with the world. And I remember one Chris. This is in the book. One Christmas, um, we were. My parents had this amazing talent for always making the Christmas dinner. My mum really making Christmas dinner coincide with the beginning of the Christmas top of the pops, which was um, which meant that she had these two kind of quite ungrateful sons <laughs> sort of who wanted to take Christmas dinner into the front room. Anyway, so this Christmas she served five plates of Christmas dinner, and we said, "Well, what's the fifth plate for?" And she said, "I want you to take this to Bert next door. I want you to knock on his door, and I want you to give this to him." And she seemed very stern. She was a very stern woman, but this edict was issued quite sternly. And uh, and we sort of took it over to to him. And he said, and and we said this. Our mum said we had to give you this. Merry Christmas. And he looked at the Christmas dinner. He sort of beckoned us in. He burst into tears, and not just like a tear, but kind of shoulder shaking, pendulous sort of proper blubbing, the like of which I'd never seen before certainly not a, not on a not on a man probably and we got and he was just lovely to us in fact the, the next time i saw him cry was when we when we let we moved to another house about a year later and we got, i remember we came back feeling very chastened we came back to the house and by that time i think we'd missed uh i think we'd missed either shawadi wadi or denise williams doing free and um and um uh, the brick house and rastrick band playing the floral dance so i always associate the floral dance with Bert crying next door um okay let's i'm gonna go into another question here um let's see um right uh, there's a quote from the book here encoded into our notion of pop is a set of values which we rarely stop to question um this explains why you and your parents like different music different values uh is that right okay well I guess it is right. I mean, there's a couple of things I would say here. Um, first of all, um, there, um, I, what I meant by that quote, encoded into our notion of pop, is a set of values which we right, rarely stop to question, is the fact that when sort of pop is supposed to be, you know, the values that we associate with pop are sort of values that are associated with teenagers, teenage angst, and you know things that we kind of traditionally find synonymous with rock and roll sort of young love falling in love finding a boyfriend or a girlfriend and uh and the angst there are certain forms of angst that in pop have a higher value than other forms of angst so you know middle-aged certainly when i was growing up middle-aged angst wasn't really a thing you came across in pop because it was still a fairly new form um so it was all sort of 
you know, boyfriend, girlfriend type stuff. And, um, and that had a higher value. And uh, I was just thinking the point I was making in the book was because I was obsessed with ABBA and the Bee Gees and it took me a long time to sort of, to sort of reconcile the values sort of ex sort of 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 their music with the values that i was constantly being told were rock and roll values and i think that was the reason in a way why abba were regarded as so uncool at the time because they looked like mum and dad's mums and dads making mum and dad music but actually that's kind of what i liked about them they were kind of it almost gave me a sort of vicarious portal into my mum and dad's world and the sort of anxieties you know that's sort of the those later ABBA albums are amazing super trooper going going actually going from voulez vous onwards they're amazing records because they're 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 the work of people who are really at the halfway point of their life and the things that are causing them anxiety are very different things that traditionally cause um songwriters anxiety and you also find that more and more in uh in in the bg the bg spirits having flown i think is one of the greatest albums of all time and it and the the things that are keeping these people up at night are not the things that are keeping were probably keeping Ian Curtis, for instance, up at night. So I think that's kind of one thing that um, I really wanted to um, to sort of dwell upon in the book. Definitely, I could go on. I have other things to say about that, but I'll probably pause it pause it there. Um, John John Mortar, the day before you came, astonishing. I mean, that's a case in point, definitely. I mean, what a what a to, to this day that's an amazing song and actually going back to i'll briefly go back to abba because there's quite an important sort of scene in the book later on where which sort of really is the beginning of the of a kind of loss of innocence that you sort of have at a certain point in your teenage years um and um where i get abba are looking increasingly unhappy every time they appear on their television either in their songs or um or on their promotional appearances and we just got a video recorder and i recorded their final british kind of primetime tv interview with noel edmonds and they just look like they hate each other like they look bored they look completely spent and they're carping at each other and they're sniping at each other and it's an amazing thing i mean after all this is done you know um have a go onto YouTube and and try and find the late late breakfast show appearance uh, of Abba uh, Abba on there, and the body language is just toxic, and that was kind of, you know, part of the thing about the book. Part of the, a, a big aspect of the book is looking at the templates of adulthood that exist, um, predominantly this, pre predominantly through pop, and thinking, I think I'm stuffed here because no one really seems very happy, you know yeah abba don't seem very happy all these you know you know all punk bands who are writing about nuclear war and unemployment and having to get you know the special singing do nothing and rat race you know this kind of version of adult life where you get an office job and it's kind of a living death you know i even watched um there was a documentary about uh called the big time about um this new singer called sheena easton they were kind of following her as she attempted to sort of have a hit single and even that looked miserable because she was just being you know being slagged off by stylists and having to do all sorts of demeaning things in order to become a pop star and you know the final nail in the coffin was that going to see the baron knights in a way uh who i actually saw you know when they're off stage and i won't say anything more about it because i don't want to spoil it 
I saw that when they were off stage, they were a very different group to the uh, fun-loving clowns that they were uh, sort of on stage. Um, I think it's almost time for me to go. Um, I'm just going to answer a couple more questions. Um, you've spoken how your background influenced you and your brother's immersion into British culture. How did your experiences in turn influence your parents? Um, funnily enough, I had a conversation with my mum uh, about this uh, on the phone last week. And she said, uh, she said something along the lines of, I think we probably worried a bit too much about if it was going to be all okay with you and your brother. And uh, and if we did, then, you know, I'm kind of sorry about I mean, she doesn't need to be sorry about anything. Obviously, if you've read the book, you know that she's the last person that needs to be sorry about anything. So I just sort of said to her, um, and it's interesting, actually, because you see it with a lot of people in their kind of seventh, eighth and ninth decade in life. They do suddenly relax. You know, often you hear that you see people like grandparents are more relaxed and liberal than sort of parents are. And I think it's because they've lived long enough to sort of see that basically everything kind of turns out all right in the end. And, uh, and you know, your children find their rhythm in adulthood. And of course you, you, you love them, you know, you love, you love them in a different way. They, then you love what they became just as much as perhaps what you wanted them to become. And, uh, uh, Oh, Katie. Okay. Yes. Sorry. A bit of stuff. <laughs> tell them about book of the week and the spotify list okay so yes I, if you don't already know uh, broken greek has been selected as uh, radio falls book of the week and uh, and this is that's what i've been doing all day i've been um i've been in a socially distanced studio reading uh, five separate installments of the book which are going to be um broadcast on radio four on monday tuesday wednesday thursday friday starting on may the 4th uh, so i'm very excited about that and um and there's a Spotify um, playlist which has got all the songs on Broken Greek. Uh, so I think I mentioned it earlier on, but you can listen to everything uh, while you uh, listen to the book. Um, and if there's any more questions that you have, just go on Twitter and just um, just ask me there. I'll answer anything you've got. So thank you very much. And thanks, Damien, for asking me on to here. Thank you, guys. Bye-bye. And if you enjoyed listening to that but would like to watch it, you can check our Facebook page and look at the videos and you can see me chatting with the guests and see the guests in their homes and see me in my home and just generally watch it all as well as listen. And of course, if you haven't subscribed to our newsletter, you can do that via our website, which is www.theliterarysalon.co.uk. Thank you.